In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Every decision that you will ever make will cost you something. No matter how inconsequential it may seem, each time we make a decision, it costs us something. When you got up this morning, maybe you poured a bowl of cereal, and by pouring that bowl of cereal, you chose not to have eggs and toast. Every time we say yes to one thing, we say no to all of the other possibilities that we could have chosen. Likewise, maybe you reached into your closet, and this morning you remembered you were supposed to wear red, and, or you were encouraged to. And when you chose that red shirt or that red dress or that red piece of clothing, you said no to all of the other garments of clothing in your closet. And then sometimes we have to make decisions that are more consequential than just what we will wear or what we will eat. Sometimes we have to choose who we will be in relationship with or what community we will be a part of. And so this morning you made a choice to come to this place and maybe you passed a hundred other communities that you could have been in service with this morning, but you chose to be here. Our decisions cost something. And when we say yes to one thing, we say no to a bunch of other things. And so I think about my faith and what it has costed me over the years. And I wonder how costly my faith actually is. I've never got up for church in the morning and there's been like a guard at my door telling me that I can't go to church. I've never arrived at the building and the doors have been chained up, not counting COVID. I've never uh, arrived here and been told that I can't come inside. In fact, the ways in which my faith has cost me something is more personal. And I can remember when I was leaving the denomination that I grew up in, there was a lot of fracturing in my personal life. Suddenly, people who I had been in community with my whole life wondered if I was walking away from God or the church because I was simply going somewhere else. And still, there are times where people who I grew up with wonder about me even though I'm in a collar. (laughs) They wonder if I'm still in relationship with God because I'm not part of that one community that they are still part of. Our decisions about our faith cost us something, and sometimes it is small, and sometimes it is big, and sometimes it is public, and other times it is private and personal, but there is a cost to our faith. But this week I thought about my faith in comparison to those people who followed Jesus within the first century. I thought about those first disciples and how costly it was for them to choose to follow Jesus. And especially in those last 50 days after the resurrection, the 40 days between there and the ascension, at least Jesus was still present with them. In fact, maybe their faith was even bolstered in that time because they thought Jesus was dead, but then he had resurrected. And suddenly all possibilities seemed possible. Suddenly everything that had been promised to them about the way the world could be seemed like a great possibility. Because now their Messiah, their Savior, this Jesus was resurrected in front of them. And then he starts talking about leaving. And like we read in the gospel this morning, Jesus begins very early on in his ministry to tell his disciples that he's not going to be around forever, at least not in this earthly form. But he promises them that a comforter, an advocate, will be sent into the world. A spirit of truth that will reveal everything. And so I think about those disciples after the ascension, 
for those 10 days what it must have been like. One of my favorite passages, I've said this a lot, but one of my favorite passages in the Scripture is in the last chapter of Matthew, those final concluding verses. Matthew does not record the ascension, but Matthew does have the Great Commission. And Jesus is talking to His disciples about what life is going to be like and how they should carry this message forward into the world around them. And it says, When Jesus appeared to them, they worshipped Him and some doubted. Here are people who have walked with Jesus. They've seen Him in person, in the flesh and blood. They've watched Him die. They've seen His miracles. They've seen Him resurrect. And still, the human heart and mind doubted. Now, it doesn't say specifically what they, what they doubted, but doubt was still in their hearts. And for me, I find great comfort in this because sometimes I doubt too. In fact, sometimes I think doubt is a necessary component of our faith. It pushes us forward. But for 10 days they waited, 120 disciples gathered together tightly in this room, and their faith really would cost them something. One of my other favorite passages in Scripture is Hebrews 13, and the author is writing to a group of people who are afraid for their lives, and the author says, soon we will have to go outside of the gate, and there we will experience the same abuse that Jesus endured. In other words, sometimes for our faith, there is actual a physical cost. It might cost us our health. It might cost us our lives. And for them, this was the truth. And so these 120 disciples sat in that upper room, anxious and excited and afraid and wondering what in the world was going to be like and what this comforter or advocate would actually be. And then suddenly something happened. We didn't read it this morning, but Acts chapter 2 says that a violent rushing wind tore through this room and above their heads were flames of fire. And suddenly the Spirit of God was in this room, and not only in this room, but in the world. But what in the world does it look like for us to actually be filled with the Holy Spirit? We're here this morning, we've got red up on the wall and red on the altar, and some of us are wearing red and we're celebrating uh, the season of Pentecost, but what does it mean for us to actually be filled with the Spirit? In the denomination that I grew up in, we had pretty strict ideas of what this meant. I grew up in the Pentecostal church, and they would tell you that in order to be filled with the Spirit, you needed to speak in tongues at least once. It was the initial physical evidence. It didn't matter if you ever spoke in tongues again. You needed to do it at least for the first time in order to be filled with the Spirit. But even as a young, at a young age, that didn't set right with me because some of the people who I knew who were the most loving, godly, Spirit-filled people hadn't done this, and they weren't even part of the Pentecostal church, and I just couldn't imagine that the small segment of Christianity were the only people filled with the Spirit of God. And so now, hopefully that I, well, I'm definitely older, but hopefully a little bit more mature. A story that I think about when I think about being filled with the Spirit, I, I was in my mid-twenties, I'd come home from graduate school, and my parents had moved to Alabama. And I went into a Regents Bank to open, I think, a checking account. And I was in the lobby, and my parents had lived there for a couple of years, but I had never done anything but visit. I had been there for maybe like a week at a time, a handful of times. And from across the lobby, a woman shouted out, Are you Larry Woods' son? I turned around and trying to figure out who this was, and I didn't see anyone that I recognized. And so she began to walk over, and I began to walk to her. And we begin to have this conversation. And I said, yes, I, I, 
I think you're talking about, my dad's name is Larry Woods, unless you're talking about another Larry Woods. How, how in the world would you know that? And then she said to me something that people probably only say in Alabama. She said, boy, he is all over you. <laughs> she said, the way that you talk, the sound of your voice, your mannerisms. She said, I thought you were Larry until I looked over and I saw a younger man. And then, for a minute, I couldn't figure out who in the world this person was. But I knew when I got here and I saw the way that you acted and the way that you spoke and the way that you existed in this room, I knew you had to be related to Larry Woods. This is the way that things happen. We spend our time with someone and suddenly they rub off on us. A piece of who they are becomes a piece of who we are. And maybe, just maybe, at the base of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, it just means that we've spent enough time in church and around God's people and being shaped by the Scriptures and by the liturgy and enough time with Jesus where a little bit of Jesus actually rubs off on us. Man, wouldn't it be great for us to be out in the world and for someone to come up to us and say, Man, the Spirit of God is all over you. So maybe what it means to be filled with the Spirit is simply to be the body of Christ and to be the front-facing face of God that the world sees. Maybe being filled with the Spirit simply means being a visible expression of the Spirit of God in the world. And so we go back to the room, and there's 120 disciples there, and they don't know what's going to happen. And suddenly, there is a violent, rushing wind that is tearing through the room, and there are tongues of fire on their heads. This is a strange picture. And they don't know what's happening, and suddenly they begin to speak in other tongues, all of them speaking different languages than they've ever spoke before in their life. They did not have Rosetta Stone. And they're speaking in these different languages. And then they begin to spill out into the street. And they're in a port city where there's many other people also speaking many other languages. But something miraculous happens. And I'll get there in just one second. In Genesis chapter 11, two, verse, two passages after the flood story, the world is rebuilding. And people are gathering together and they're constructing a city, maybe the greatest city the world has ever seen. And in the midst of the city, they begin to build a tower. And this tower is going to reach into heaven. And God looks down and says, oh no, <laughs> the people of the earth are not pure in heart and they are chasing after their own power and their motives here are all wrong. And God comes into the midst of them and scatters the people and disrupts their language. And maybe you've heard the story before, the Tower of Babel. What I love about Pentecost is some couple of thousand years later, the day of Pentecost is the great reversal of the scattering and disruption that we see in Genesis 11. God comes into the midst of this room with 120 disciples. God's spirit of truth lays down with them like a violent rushing wind because for once the people of the earth are unified not around their own desire for power or wealth or privilege or influence, but they are gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ and ready to preach about God's powerful deeds. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we will not only be a church that ventures towards Easter each year, that we will make it there, 
and we will celebrate the resurrection. And then we will walk with these disciples who are unsure and afraid through those 40 to 50 days until they get to Pentecost. But I pray that we will also be a church that takes seriously Pentecost as well. Because we too have that spirit of truth. And God can be all over us. And it is our true and one calling to be the body of Christ and the front-facing face of God to the world who will recognize the face of God if only they will see it in us. Amen.